This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Turn with me, please, this morning to Genesis chapter 3, third chapter of Genesis. <coughs> record of Adam and Eve is thousands of years old, and today it is looked upon by many as just folklore, uh, just a fable, something that's completely irrelevant to a modern age. Preachers, uh, often modernistic preachers and certainly liberal theologians, uh, they don't take it seriously. They say it's just a a metaphor or an allegory. It's just a literary device by someone to teach some moralistic message, but do not believe that it was a real person, that Adam and Eve were literal people. That's what they say. But both Jesus and Paul put tied to that because both of them made it very, very clear when they were speaking that there was no mistaking they believed that they were two real living human beings. And it is true that the story is thousands of years old, uh, but whenever we see the consequences of their actions on that fateful day that we call the fall, uh, then every man and every woman, every boy, every girl on the planet since then has been profoundly affected. And so we want to have a little look at this record again. I know it's familiar, but, but sometimes in our familiarity, uh, we, we forget or we read over quickly and we miss uh, what the Word of God is really, really trying to say to us. And so we'll begin reading just from verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? (laughs) Now, we need to be careful at speculation. Uh, It would seem to imply at least because later on God curses the serpent and tells it's going to crawl on its belly, basically, from that day forth. That would imply, you would think, that before that it was an upright animal. Well, it had legs, we don't know, but whether it just reared up, we don't know, but it seemed to be uh, a creature that was upright. Uh, It also had this capacity to speak. And some thought because of that, that maybe Adam and Eve was able to communicate with the animals, but we can't say that because the Bible certainly doesn't say that. But at least at this point, it was able to speak probably because it was energized by Satan himself. You remember that God caused Balaam's ass to speak to the prophet. And so perhaps that's all it was, the enemy, evil one, speaking through this creature. Surprisingly, we don't know why, but Eve was not shocked or startled the fact that this serpent spoke to her. She was very nonchalant about it. 
And so we don't know why that is either. But leaving all that aside, any speculation there may be that we just simply cannot answer, leaving all of that aside, what we do know for sure is that this is one creature that was very, very subtle, that the evil one had uh, come into this particular animal and was able to communicate with Eve here right at this tree in the midst of the garden. And notice what he said. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The enemy's tactics really hasn't changed. His first and foremost weapon against mankind is to cause a doubt about God's word. To make man suspicious of God's word. To try to get man to believe that God's word is untrustworthy. And that God really doesn't mean what he says. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And from that day to this, it's the word of God that comes under scrutiny and suspicion and is refused and is rebelled against ever since that day. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, God didn't say that. In fact, God said the opposite. In verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. With one exception. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God is, God's word is immediately uh, put under scrutiny and caused to be able to doubt it, want it to, them to doubt what God had already made very, very clear indeed. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the tree as of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now Eve, whenever the serpent began to speak to her and wanting her to doubt God's word, she should have walked away. Adam wasn't there at that point. We don't know where Adam was. He was maybe tending the garden somewhere, inspecting the trees or the bushes, but he wasn't there. She should have said, excuse me, let me fetch my husband. But she didn't. She decided to communicate. And as soon as she did that, she was open to all kinds of suggestions. And whenever she started to communicate, notice here she did something that, again, man has been doing ever since, that God warns against. <coughs> she took away from the Word of God, and she added to the Word of God. Away over in Revelation chapter 22, towards the end of it, 
you don't necessarily need to turn to this, just let me read it. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from things which are written in this book. Now you say, well, that particularly, specifically refers to the book of Revelation, which it does, but the principle is the same. God doesn't want anyone to take away from his words or add to his words. But that's exactly what she did here. She said, we may eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden, but she left out freely eat. Making God less generous than he actually is. It may seem I'm being pedantic here and it's just a, a little word, but she was taken away and it's making God less generous, less kind than he actually is. And then she added to the word of God. God has said you shall not eat of it nor shall you touch it. No, he didn't say that you couldn't touch it. So she added to the word of God. And then she said, she took away again, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, she softened what God had said. God didn't say lest you die. God said, you shall surely die. Very emphatic. But Eve had softened that somewhat. Perhaps you'll die, lest you die. Maybe you'll die. No, God said, you shall surely die. And so you see that pattern today, thousands of years later. And not just with the world out there, but I'm talking even within church life, even within Christianity, that the Word of God is being reduced, added to, taken away from. The latest publishers of the NIV has subtracted hundreds if not thousands of scriptures from the original and have changed for no apparent reason, changed words and verses and took out verses, added to and taken away. <coughs> and so here she is. She's in communication with the evil one. The serpent must have looked very attractive. She didn't seem afraid. She didn't want to, oh, most people when they see a snake, there's something that, oh, now there's people who love snakes, I know that, but most people, generally. But whatever this serpent looked like, must have been beautiful. And here she's in communication, and now she's beginning to add to and take away from what God actually said. See how subtle the serpent was. Has God said? Are you sure? Did God really mean that? But now that she's in conversation and she's going with the flow as it were, then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Now he's emboldened. Now this is a ball-faced lie. 
Nothing subtle about this. <laughs> and the attacks on God's word today, there's nothing subtle about it. It's in your face. You will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. How ironic is that coming from the father of lies? Coming from the one that Jesus said was a liar from the beginning. But then he said this. In other words, this is the reason why God's lying to you. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God doesn't want your eyes opened. God is withholding from you. There's knowledge that you don't know and God doesn't want you to know. <laughs> and we see that echoed today. If you follow God, you'll be less intelligent. You'll be an idiot. And you think I'm just being smart about that. I'm not actually because there are many, many scientists who are Christians who cannot get their works published because they believe in God and they believe in a creator. One of the best men in NASA lost his job because he put on social media that he believed in special creation. It had nothing to do with his job. It would not affect that anything he was doing within his engineering profession, but he got the sack for it. And the feeling is, among many scientists today, <laughs> that if you believe in God and if you believe in creation, then you are less intelligent. You are not scientific. Your eyes hasn't been opened. You're in the dark ages. See, this still follows today. God is omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing. But man today thinks he's omniscient because of science, because of technology. Well, we know so much more than we used to know. And knowledge is increasing exponentially every decade, and it is. And so therefore, we don't need your God. We've got our science. We've got our technology. We've, we're clever. We're bright. We're smart. We have it figured out. And the parts we haven't figured out, wait a while, we soon will. And here's the argument in evolution. Call it the God of the gaps. They say, well, we have, we have evolution figured out. We know where we came from. We know even how the universe started. We know, but there's parts we just are still not sure yet. There's a few gaps in our knowledge, but uh, those gaps, you put God in there. You Christians, you put God in there, the God of the gaps. But your gaps are getting shorter every year because we're getting more knowledgeable every year. And soon there'll be no gaps. It'll be all knowledge. We'll know by size and technology. So go away with your God. That's a fairy tale. We don't believe that. We don't need that nonsense. That's what's pushed today. And it's getting increasingly more difficult for people in the sciences to fight that because they're getting sidelined and ostracized and blackballed. 
God is not just omniscient. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. But men say today, well, we're all-powerful too. We have all power. Look at our nuclear power. Look at the mighty armaments that we have. Look at the stockpiles of nuclear bombs we have got. Look at our great armies. Look at our ability in warfare. It's scary. We're so powerful. And there is a lot of power around today. Uh, I mean, I was watching a program recently about drones and, and how the armies, uh, maybe in Iraq and in, in Syria and Libya in different places, where they're using drones to, to bomb the, the enemy. Only those who are doing this is in America. They're in England. They're thousands of miles away from where that drone is, but it's just like a, like a video game with a console. Only it's highly destructive. I was reading just the other day that both America and Britain, they're developing laser warfare where they're, they're making laser weapons that eventually want to be able to blow airplanes out of the sky with just lasers. And so man today thinks, well, well we're all powerful. Look at the power we've got. You shall be as God, the serpent said. That's why God doesn't want your eyes opened. Because he knows when your eyes are opened, you'll be like he is. You'll be all-powerful. You'll be all-knowing. God is also omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Well, man, today said, well, we can be everywhere present. And there's no question the world's got a small place with telecommunications, with satellite technology, with all of that. You can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours today. Anywhere. It used to take you six weeks in the boat to go to Australia. You can be there in 24 hours. We can communicate. I was talking to my daughter in the Philippines the other day on, on FaceTime. And I, I remember when she went, that was 18 years ago, there was no such a thing as that. You didn't have tablets. You didn't even have phones. Like, you know, smartphones didn't have any of those things. BT was charging you pound nineteen a minute to use your landline. <laughs> Thank God those days are over. But the world suddenly is a very, very, very small place, isn't it? And so we can, in a sense, be everywhere present. The only difference is God can be everywhere present at the same time. <laughs> we can't do that. But you see how profound those words of the serpent were and how that mindset dominates today that we are our own God. We don't need your God. We're powerful enough, we're smart enough, we're clever enough. I'm sure you've all heard of the Invictus Games. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that Prince Harry is probably the patron. Invictus uh, is a Latin word which means unconquered. And the whole thing came from a poem written by an Englishman, William Ernest Hendley, in the mid-1800s. And here, here's how it reads. Now, there's a, there's a positive side to this, but how it ends up is different. Uh, this, this particular man, when he was 17, he lost his leg through TB. 
and he lost a leg, and it looked as if he was going to lose his other leg, but he didn't. But during the time he was in an infirmary, infirmary, he wrote this poem, and it became a famous poem. In fact, they made a movie about it. And here's how it goes. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. I fell on the clutch of circumstance. I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how changed with, how charged with punishments the scroll. And these are the last two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Hmm. And that has become the mantra today of the unconquerable, unquenchable spirit of man. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. I don't need your God or any gods. I can do it by myself. And you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Up to that point, however long they were in the garden to that point, we don't know. But up to that point, they had only ever known good. Why in the world would they want to know evil? There's something about if something's withheld from us, we must have it. That's <laughs> not right. <coughs> Thou shalt not, really? <clears throat> the painted fence, wet paint, do not touch. <laughs> the little child, the mummy says, uh uh, don't touch. And while those big eyes that's looking up at you, the fingers going out as if to say, mm, I'm going to touch it. <laughs> I'm going to touch it. Well, after they ate of this fruit, then they did no evil. Their firstborn son, Cain, was a murderer and brought murder and death and mayhem into his family by killing his brother. And that evil has persisted to this very day. It's all around us. Nobody has to tell us. We can see it. It's everywhere. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate Notice the three things that attracted her. The tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. 1 John 2.16, John writes, and he talks about those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. The pride of life, 
desire to make one wise. Nothing wrong with wisdom if it's godly wisdom, if it's good wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us to get wisdom. It's the principal thing. But then James talked about a wisdom that was <coughs> sensual, devilish, earthly. Paul talks about the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness with God. The world thinks when we talk about God, that's foolishness, but God says in all of their wisdom, it's foolishness with God. And so what I'm trying to say is that what happened in that garden that day, though it was thousands of years ago and it was real, it still perpetuates. It hasn't changed. It may be the same devil wearing a different hat, but he's still saying the same things. And the world still believes it because it's attractive. Devil's not that stupid. He's going to tempt you. He's going to tempt you something that's attractive. Then the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Sorry, I left out a little bit. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband with her and he ate. An important part that we dare not leave out. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Eve was deceived. But Adam wasn't deceived. Actually, God gave the command to Adam before Eve was ever created. And then Adam told Eve. So he knew the importance of this. He knew the danger. And he made sure his wife knew. But we do not know why, having known that she actually disobeyed the word of God and partook of that forbidden fruit, we do not know exactly why he then took it. Some thinks maybe it was because he didn't want to be separated from his wife. Didn't fully understand what was coming, but knew it wasn't good and wanted still to be with her because he loved her. But that's just speculation. But what we do know was he made a conscious, deliberate decision, having known what his wife did, known the word of God says, you shall surely die, he went ahead and he ate. But at that point, when she ate of the fruit and she came to him, maybe he looked at her and she didn't drop down dead. She's still very much alive. So maybe the thought came in. That first thought that the devil injected into the mind of Eve, has God said... Is it really true? Do they really mean that? There are some medicines 
that you can take that has more or less immediate effect. I, I was getting, picking up a script in the chemist the other day, and while I was waiting, you just, you're browsing, just looking about, and I just happened to be standing beside a whole rack of tablets for headaches. It's amazing how many tablets for headaches there are. And I looked at them, and it says, Express Relief. Quick acting. They used to put instant relief. I don't think they, they get away with that now. But the idea is that if you take these tablets, well, within maybe an hour, you'll, you'll be feeling rightly. But there are other medicines that have slow release. It's not going to happen within the hour. It'll maybe take a few days for it to kick in to balance things. And sin is like that. Some sins are instant, express, fast. The consequences are almost immediately. But then there's other sins. And it's accumulative. It takes effect later on. You don't drop down dead now. It takes effect later on. And this is what happened here. When Adam partook, the eyes were opened and for the first time ever, they felt shame. Never had needed to feel ashamed ever before. But they felt ashamed of their nakedness. So sin was acting very quickly here, but there was a slow release when it came to physical death. Adam lived 930 years. But the eyes of them both were opened as soon as he partook. And suddenly, instantly, intuitively, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. And they hid themselves. Sin brings shame. But we're good at trying to cover it up course, if we keep on sinning the same sin, then we'll not feel the same shame, and after a while we won't feel any shame. But initially, we feel I've done wrong. This is not right. I'm ashamed. I'm going to try to cover. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as they'd heard many times before. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Never, ever had to do that before. Never, ever needed to or ever felt like it before. But suddenly, they feel guilty before a holy God. And they went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the garden to try to hide. But there's no hiding place from God. Sure, there's not. He's omnipresent. <laughs> He's omniscient. <laughs> and the Lord God called out to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And I've said it many times before. 
when an omniscient God asks you a question that he already knows the answer, it's not for his benefit, it's for your benefit. He knew exactly where he was. But he wanted Adam to know where he was before him. Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. First recorded words of Adam after the fall was, I was afraid. Sin immediately brought a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of fear before God. It happened pretty fast. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. But the Lord persists. Why do you think the Lord persists in this? Is he playing a little game with him? No. There's a purpose for this. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Adam, where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? Why all the questions? Listen to me carefully. He was given Adam and Eve a chance to confess their sin. To hold up their hands and say, Lord, I messed up. I'm a sinner. I disobeyed your word. I didn't listen. I went ahead. I went against what you said. I am a sinner. That's what God was trying to get them to admit. But would they do that? Do we do that? Does the word do that? Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. He blamed his wife, and he blamed God. You know, what the implication is here, you know, God, I didn't ask you for a wife. You were the one that said a man shouldn't be alone. I was doing all right. And, you know, and things was fine between you and me, and then you, you brought this woman into my life, and now look at the mess we're in. See, it's your fault. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> And that's what we do with sin. We push it off onto someone else or something else. But we don't admit it. It's, it's me. I'm the sinner. Was Eve any better? Of course not. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, that was partly true. The serpent did deceive her. But she didn't have to be deceived. If she had a nipped that in the bud, she wouldn't have been deceived. But it's the serpent's fault. It's God's fault. It's Eve's fault. Anybody's fault. Everybody's fault. But not my fault. And that's exactly what we do with sin. Exactly what man does with sin. Only what we do now is we get a different name, don't we? We don't call sin sin anymore. <laughs> We're too smart for that. So we give it another name. We use euphemisms. 
Very few Christian songs today has sin mentioned in them. You get them in the old hymn book, but very few Christian songs have sin. With mistakes, with regrets, with messed up, with mishaps. We blew it. We sinned. That's what God wanted them to say. I have sinned. But they didn't. And we don't. And the world doesn't. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know as believers what he's talking about. Proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium, the first gospel this is called. This is the gospel right there in the garden when man first fell. And God has placed it right here, right at the beginning. And that gospel is still with us today to deal with man's sin today. And we know who her seed was. Not seeds, but seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the seed of the devil, humanity in sin. But Christ came to deliver us and to free us and to forgive us. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So consequences were great and those consequences are with us to this very day. Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And I'm sure they had to watch while two animals were slain, blood was shed before that guilt could be covered. And then it goes on to say, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and to know evil. And boy, we know both, don't we? And what a wicked, evil world we live in today. And it seems just to be getting worse by the day. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned, away, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And God was going to make sure that he would not live forever, that mankind would not live forever in a sinful state. Because if he had eaten the tree of life after that, he'd live forever in a sinful state with no hope of release, with no hope of salvation. So he was barred, thank God. And so the tree in the midst of the garden that promised so much, that was begun to be so great, that was going to be so enlightening, that was going to be such a blessing, became a curse. And all it brought forth was death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Physical death, separation of the soul from the body. What the devil promises may seem so great, so attractive, so exciting. But in the end, the Bible says it brings forth death. When sin has finished, that's what it brings, death. Now, it'd be a shame if we just left that there. But we're not going to leave it there. And we're going to finish in five minutes. But we're not going to leave it there. Because that promise was made about one who would come who would bruise his head, who would break his authority. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Hmm. There was the tree that was in the midst of the garden that brought forth death. But there was the tree in Golgotha that though it brought death to Jesus, it brought life to us. And that's the tree that we sing about, that we boast about. Seems strange, doesn't it? It was the only religion in the world whose symbol seems to be a thing of execution. And it's not that we rejoice in the execution but in the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be executed, to die on that tree, that cross, for us, that's what we boast in. His life given for us, his innocent life for our guilty life, that's our boast. And the Apostle Paul, in, in, in Galatians chapter 6, and in verse 14, he says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
Paul wrote to one church and he says, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's what brings us life. Eve looked at that tree that promised so much that only brought death. But we look at the tree on Golgotha. Brought death to Jesus, but the promise of life to us. Aren't you glad for the cross today? Would to God that every eye was opened to the reality of the cross. Adam and Eve were barred from the tree of life. But one day, we will have access to the tree of life. Revelation 22, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can't explain that. It's beyond my capability. But we do know that the word healing there is theopira, which is where we get therapeutic from. So you could read that. The leaves of the trees were for the well-being of the nations. I don't know how that works. But all I do know is, <laughs> in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be a tree of life that everyone who touches it will have a feeling of well-being. <laughs> devil promised so much, delivered so little. Mankind has been suffering ever since. But God set in place another tree, another day, another place, on Golgotha, on Calvary's hill, and we look to that tree and we look and we live. Like the serpent that was set up in the wilderness when the people were dying, look and live. And all we've got to do is look and live. Glory to God. Amen. Let's pray. Ken isn't, Kenneth, you're doing the communion soon. Ken's going to do communion for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the life that you have imparted to each of us. Life indeed. The best life. The only life. Eternal life. Abundant life. We thank you for your cross that made it possible. Lord, we were glad the day and air we took your word as truth and we received it as truth. And we thank you that it's changed us forever. So we bless you as we meet around this table now, giving you thanks for all that you've done. In Jesus' name.
thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.